Okay, I think I want to. I want to do. I'll. I'll make a brief version of this introduction. Um, um, 19 years ago, 18 years ago, something like that. When I finished the PhD, when yeah, I started. Right. Well, your story starts from there. 15, 15, <laughs> 15 years ago, in my PhD. Okay. Uh, 15 years ago, uh, Suzanne Smidler, our speaker today, uh, finished the PhD in sociology and then took off in a rather um, remarkable direction in the sense that what she then proceeded to do was to apply a lot of the applied skills and uh, she always had, call it sociological imagination that she picked up doing a PhD to a variety of, of uh, peace building and conflict uh, settings. Um, almost all in Afghanistan. She could talk about others, but Afghanistan's been her primary focus. Uh, she's been in and out of Afghanistan since 2001, uh, 2002. Oh, 2000. I, I, um, I remember a very vivid email that I got from her back um, sometime around 2002, 2003, about how they blew the front of the building off of the building next to where you were staying or someplace yeah, like this. Yeah, that was that. That was a chalk bomb. <laughs> At any rate. So anyway, so you get kind of a, of a sense for the terrain that she's at times worked in, although I think it's probably more Pacific than that another, most of the time. Um, a couple other things that she's done, I think they're notable and might be useful to you to be aware of. Uh, she started off her early career studying refugees, humanitarian disasters, got me interested in humanitarian early warning, humanitarian disaster planning and the like. Uh, worked for the UNHCR for a while, actually taught them how to estimate the number of refugees worldwide, something that they didn't know how to do uh, until she worked with them uh, in the late 90s for a while. Um, she's also uh, worked with uh, Swiss Peace Foundation in Switzerland uh, on what was among a couple projects, the FAST project that I knew about, the uh, FAST Early Warning System. Uh, she worked as a project director with an entity called Global Warn. She's got a whole list of alphabet agencies here, and I'm just picking up a couple of them. Uh, she is... Uh, currently, uh, since 2003, is a senior advisor for the liaison office. Um, I think she'll talk about that here or draw upon that experience. She works at uh, Australian National University as a fellow. Uh, and she also has a title at the University of Ontego in New Zealand as well. Uh, so I think with that, I'll just leave the floor to Suzanne. Okay, I hope that works. I'm a bit nervous with having the microphone here. Um, well, thank you for having me. It's always good to come back to my alma mater. When I said after, I, I just I went to the U.S. for the International Studies Association, and they, and I said, where are you going next? And I go, I'm going to Columbus, Ohio. And they, what are you doing there? And I said, well, that's where I got my Ph.D. from. So... And it's very good of Craig that he's been in touch with me that long. I've always been in touch with Chad a bit, not as good as I should have, um, and particularly not as good since I've worked on Afghanistan because a uh, pretty intense, you know, environment. And it's, whenever you think it couldn't get more, it could get more intense, it actually does. So, um, and I don't think I need to say much about that. Um, I actually went the first time in 2000 as a researcher under the Taliban still. And at that point, we were trying to convince um, international actors, particularly the EU, to start 
um, working a bit with civil society and the business community to make sure that there was capacity when there was a window of opportunity open up and that it didn't make sense to just give humanitarian assistance to refugees, you know, that you needed to somehow start a peace process. Um, and nobody then was really interested in Afghanistan, you know, it kind of dropped off the international attention. And that all changed in 2001. And that's when I would say the rapid involvement in Afghanistan started. And when I was first asked in the end of 2001 by Brahimi, who was running the, um, who made the, you know, the Bonn conference with the Bonn agreement, um, they've asked me whether I could have a parallel conference with civil society actors also, which I did on the bottom of the hill. Um, we had 10 days to organize it. <laughs> Everything always has to have happen rapidly. And it was partially because they felt that maybe the people on the, on the hill weren't quite the people that maybe should decide the future of Afghanistan. Um, another interpretation would be that they wanted to pay lip service to civil society engagement. And out of that grew the Afghan civil society firm that I started working with in Afghanistan in 2002. And out of that grew the organization that I represent now, which is the liaison office. It used to be called the tribal liaison office. There are stories behind why we changed name and shortly just TLO. And we work on uh, research and dialogue mainly with traditional structures. And, um, and I guess because I come from a research background, I always taught the importance of research, but it also came out of an idea, understanding that there was really a lack of understanding of the engagement environment. In military terms, it would be the human terrain, so to bring it in that term. Um, and we, we based our uh, philosophy of the do-no-harm philosophy that understanding before engagement reduces the ability of doing harm. And I would make the argument, because there was lack of understanding, I think people um, have come to terms with it, there has been a lot of harm done in Afghanistan. And maybe things haven't quite gone the way that they should have gone or were wished to go. And um, because from an incredible opportunity in 2001, we are at a point where potentially the country is worse off than before, where there are casualties you know, on the side of military but also civilians. And since I come, I guess, from the civilian side, that's what we have looked at. And, and it's a tricky situation. It's a tricky situation for civilians in Afghanistan right now. It's quite tricky for people like me as well that come there for peace building because the question is of how much space we still have left. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a bit about that. I have to admit that I was just shifting slides around right before and then things got scrambled. So in case a slide is not in the place where I wanted to shift it, I may have to uh, jump you back and forth. So I apologize for that about it. So, um, and, you know, I, 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 they wanted a title and I gave that. And the reason why is that I've looked more into that is because of several research I've been engaged in. Um, there's a report coming out with the Brookings Institution about displacement in southern Afghanistan which should be done any time now. They, it was launched a draft. We had a launch in December in Washington, and now they went through an edit, and then it'll be up on the web. And they'll be trying to show a bit what happens on the ground and how actually um, how civilians are kind of caught you know, in the middle. And I'll draw on some of the quotes in here. There's a second research we've done with the Open Society Institute, and that policy brief should come out tomorrow, so look for it on night rates, which is, search and detention missions by the military 
we're trying to have a bit of an impact how they are conducted and trying to prove or show up, demonstrate, not prove, demonstrate a bit how they're alienating the population and potentially in a campaign of winning hearts and minds, um, you're potentially losing them. So that's the title, I think. It's Strangers at the Door, How You're Losing Hearts and Minds in Afghanistan. So, And that's based on interviews with, <clears throat> with communities and former detainees as well. I've also written a blog about detention, which is called Until You Get the Wrong Ahmad, which is just a story of a detainee in Kunduz. Um, and, that's, and that's a website that I can recommend to everybody. There's something called now the Ana Afghan Analyst Network, which is a network of analysts that come together. There's some core people that work there 100% and some people like me who are just affiliated. And they have research papers um, and also blogs on topics. So, and you can look for them. It's Afghan Analyst Network, you can find them. They're fairly new, I think they started last year, so. It's fairly multidisciplinary, so. So let's see. Um, so protection of civilians, and I wanna remind that in theory, protection of civilians is, is to remind is first and foremost, of course, the task of national authorities. And internationals tend to really get involved when there is a failure of protection, when there's either unwilling or unable to live up. And you can talk a lot about that, and I won't in this, and it's quite discussed in this paper, we talk about internal displacement that the Afghan government is, you know, it's probably a mix of inability maybe unwilling to, unwillingness to do protection. And I put it in there and I, I, I go more about that clearly all states have a specific obligation under international law. Geneva Convention, I'm reminded all the time that some of those laws don't apply as much because under war, particularly just war theory, there are certain things you can do that maybe you shouldn't do. Uh, and maybe I need to read up on those areas a bit, so. Uh, how did international involvement begin? So one could make the argument that actually the intervention in 2001 was partially out of a broader concept of political protection. We all know it responded to 9-11, you know, it was also partially of self-protection, of course, uh, of the United States against terrorism. There was an added flair of, you know, rescuing women from the Taliban. Um, but basically the political protection concept would be, you know, um, that you depose an abusive regime, you create something better, more accountable, and that's why the intervention went hand in hand within the peace and reconstruction process in Afghanistan. So, um, and there's actually studies been done, I, I, there's a military that written about something called the Afghan model on how you intervened in Afghanistan, and I would say that's actually where the problem started. Because maybe from a military logic, it made a lot of sense. You couldn't get enough or fast enough boots on the ground. You wanted to reduce the amount of civilian ca on, the, on the casualties on your own side from the military. So you needed an ally. And the only ally then against the Taliban was a loosely connected group called the Northern Alliance, which were ex-Jihadi, Mujahideen, people that were, had also been funded in the past by the US. Anybody who wants to see a more humorous version of that can watch Charlie Wilson's war <laughs> So about that. Um, and they had been pushed out by the Taliban essentially to about 10% of the territory. So they didn't hold much territory at all. But there were advantages. That's the ones we knew. But we also in the south connected to some other ex-Jihadi figures, for example, Gulagar Shazai, that helped to take Kandahar. Um, but it was more, you know, mostly others. And, um, and one would make the argument that you know, it made sense from a military logistic point of view of winning the intervention, keeping casualties low on the side of um, particularly military forces, 
having an air warfare combined with ground troops. I mean, there were, I know, probably CIA special forces on the ground with the, with the Afghans. Um, but, I mean, there's been an argument being made that it changed and had a very impact in long-term political environment of Afghanistan and what is happening because of who was re-empowered through that intervention. Because as an ally, you favored certain people and you favored people that had been had not a good history in Afghanistan and maybe were fighting the Taliban, but when they were ruling under the, under the Mujahideen government, they didn't have necessarily a much better human rights record then, but they were good allies at that point. Um, and the quote, when I put quotes, it's from quotes that come from interviews. Somebody said, the Americans didn't think about the North, they just gave power back to the warlords. If you look at the North now, Dostum is still powerful. The other, the Northern Alliance is extremely powerful in Kunduz, you know, in other areas. And some of that has played a story in the whole resurrection of the insurgency. Of course, and that's a bullet, <laughs> it's a space that I hadn't added. And then comes the question, when we did the peace agreement in 2001, there was one party missing. Because it was the Taliban, they were defeated, they were considered not being the right there, but essentially there was a peace agreement done with essentially pretty much <clears throat> all the bad guys you could find in Afghanistan minus the Taliban, and that's how civil society saw it, because the peace agreement was done <coughs> with, um, with people that used to be fighters, you know, and as I say, we were on the bottom of the hill with the civilians, but they really didn't have much to say. I'm going to have to go and get something for my throat, because these days I get very, very, and I bought them, and I didn't put them in my pocket. <coughs> so how has it continued? And that's some, something that I'd like to always point out. Not everybody's happy, but I think the problem has been in Afghanistan that I would call it a conflict of objectives, a conflict of mandate. We have the U.S.-led coalition forces under Operation Enduring Freedom. And you have the NATO-led coalition. Somebody, somebody, some people talk about the two coalitions in Afghanistan <coughs> with ISAF and the PRTs. <coughs> Now, there's an argument that since McChrystal is the overarching head with NATO over both forces, there's a kind of <coughs> consolidation between both of them. But the command structures within each of the coalitions are still separate. And you can make the argument that the left hand doesn't know what the other hand does. And on the other hand, you can make the argument coalition forces, OEF, are there to do counterterrorism, where it doesn't matter how they, you know, whether, you know, you know, you alienate the population, whereas NATO was there for security, support of the Afghan government, reconstruction, and I suppose nowadays COIN, although I'm not so sure whether any more than now that OEF also does COIN, which is counterinsurgency, which I've been told is much different than counterterrorism because in counterinsurgency it matters quite a deal how, the, how you treat the local population. And I think that that problematic mandate has made it a bit problematic on the ground because who is an ordinary Afghan to say? I mean, for them it's hard enough to understand that they're different military actors. Sometimes they know. They surely know who the British are and it has to do with the British history in Afghanistan. But a lot of military, when they don't know who they are, they just would talk of a bunch of Americans because they also know that the Americans are there. Would they know it's ISAF or NATO? Or would they know they're OAF? Would they know they're special forces? Unlikely. I mean, I'm not even sure that I always know when I meet somebody what they're from unless they have a tag and it says it on there. So 
And then comes the addition that, of course, some special forces are not necessarily in army uniform. And, um, and there's an op-ed I wrote about that after doing some research in Kandahar. Um, there's, a, there's a difference now made in, in Kandahar between what they call the bearded Americans, who they consider extremely bad, behave badly with the local population, and then the shaven Americans who behave slightly better. Now, you can think who the bearded Americans are, but there's a big special forces base in Kandahar, or is one being built. Um, but anyways, and I once was at an army base in the north. I was actually German, and, and I was talking, and I, there were guys with beards, and I said to the guys, so, who are they? And the civilian guy that was with me said, oh, they're special forces, but you didn't see them. So they're there. And... Um, it's interesting that the Afghans on the ground tend to refer to bearded Americans now. So, um, And then comes McChrystal, of course, his assessment, and those are quotes from his, that all of a sudden there's a realization that maybe the military had a, you know, they had to change objectives. So on the McChrystal, the number of insurgents killed matters less, which, of course, is very important counterterrorism. It only matters how many people you capture and kill. Um, but it's, you know... You need, you know, to deny the insurgents support of the Afghan communities, you need to protect the Afghan communities, you know. And the reason why I put the second part in is because I think McChrystal has also understand that there's a possibility that you lose the war not because of your opponents, but maybe you defeat yourself because of how you wage the war. So what is protection? And that's where I'm like wondering now whether it's like really, it's, you know, there's a lack of actually universally accepted definition of protection. When I looked into it. There are different definitions. ICRC has come with that, but there's actually different understanding of protection. Different actors understand protection differently. State, humanitarian, political, military. And there's particularly a big difference between the humanitarian protection and the political protection, likely military. And then you may have to ask yourself, who are you protecting? And that makes it then difficult when military starts to talk about the protection of civilians becomes a core task. That's the ICRC definition. Oh, actually, it's not a real definition. It's um, a consensus definition. You know, it's a consensus made between different humanitarian organizations. So it's full respect of the rights of individuals, the, 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 the letter and the spirit of relevant bodies of law, particularly humanitarian law, you know, and that's about humanitarian actor from ICRC, but of course ICRC also talks to military actors, you know, and they, they, they try to write them and they particularly try to hold them in account to the Geneva Conventions. And I know that ICRC in Afghanistan talks a lot to military and they try to talk to Taliban as well. So the Geneva Conventions, which were made for a reason, there's usually things, you know, it has to do about arbitrary arrest and detention, you know, protection from being humiliated, Protection from displacement, from being killed, protection from torture and detention, and not using civilians as shields. Now, clearly the insurgency does all of that. But I would make the argument the insurgency has never signed the Geneva Convention. Nor have they signed on the international, nor do they really pretend. Although the new Taliban code of conduct that Mullah Omar put out talks about protection. It's really interesting how the insurgency is quite clever response to certain things. And there are certain instructions to insurgency now as well on how to deal with civilians. 
So, is the question, are military forces accustomed to identifying and protecting civilians in a hostile environment? That's the whole debate. What is a military for? What do you train the military for? Do you train them into warfare and killing? Or do you really train them into a protection force? So, the international presence has failed to stabilize Afghanistan for the past seven years. And if you look at the, it has actually likely deteriorated security. Um, International military forces are belligerent of war. If you say there's a war in Afghanistan and you fight it against the insurgency, they're no longer neutral. They are a party of the war. Peacekeeping forces are usually neutral, but it's not the case in Afghanistan. The nature of asymmetric warfare makes it very, very difficult because of civilians being used as shields, before, because of understanding, and I'm going to use the military term now, of the human terrain. You know... And I would, I would make the argument that contours of protection remain vague and open to interpretation by the different actors on the ground. And I actually talked to um, somebody who was a peacekeeping, a deputy of peacekeeping command in East Timor, and he actually said to me that he thinks McChrystal didn't quite understand when he said protection becomes the core, you know. And the question is, can they really do it? And I had some engagement with also David Kilcullen, when, when I met him, he said to me, well, if the elders start working with us on the ground, we will protect them from the insurgency, from the Afghan government, and ourselves. I said to David Kilcullen, who advises strategy, and he was part of the surge in Iraq, I said to him, are you really sure you could do that? He goes, oh, yes, we can. And I said, are you really sure you can get that many boots on the ground to protect people like that? Because already when the first surge in Helmand happened, the military could not protect the elders that the insurgency saw as affiliated with the clearing and kill, killed them. They could not protect them from being killed, which is why there is to no surprise that this time, with the big second surge in, in Helmand, a lot of people had left proactively. Because why the civilian would you stay on the ground? And that's a bit now coming from quotes again, and that's maybe a slide that, you know, but it's, it, it does fit is because do actually Afghans see us as a supporter of the Afghan state? Uh, and those come from Kodi. Americans are ruling our homeland, and the government is not capable to prevent wars or bombardments. So it can't be prevented. If the government cannot stop Americans from bombing us, how can they help us? And the international community has spent millions and millions, but the government here still not can its own feet. So there's not even a feeling that the Afghan government is supported. So there's this disconnect that actually part with their support there's actually a feeling that we're fighting the war, not just for the Afghans, but actually is a fighting a war that you fight for yourself. Those are some quotes on aerial bombardments, and that comes to the point that how hard, in my opinion, it is to protect civilians in an asymmetric warfare situation, where it's very hard to tell friend from foe. And that's some of the recommendations we put out, because one of the Afghans are always saying, you know, why is it, you know, that there are so many wrongful bombings? Is our technology who's bad, or is it a human error, or is it the information that's based on it? And the Afghan context is very complex, extremely complex ethnic and tribal divisions. It's very, very important to verify your information, because there's a lot of evidence by now of how <clears throat> certain strongmen associated with the military, international military, have used that association to have an extended military arm to take out people they don't like and opponents. Um, 
One example is, you know, the association between, for example, Kandahar is a very complex picture in the south. <clears throat> there, there are certain Durrani um, tribes that are in power, but because of the association, because one of the tribes, the Al-Khazai, had stood down during the Taliban, allowed the Taliban to take over, um, the Americans chose to ally with Gulagar Shazai, which is now governor of, of, of Nangahar. It's Barakzai. And there was a point, and they are always advised to read Sarah Chase's book, The Punishment of Virtue, because she like, describes it beautifully. At one point, all the interpreters, all the associates that were linked to the U.S. military were Barakzai. So you're getting not a view of Afghanistan that was neutral, you're getting a Barakzai view of the South. And the Barakzai... Um, are in competition not just with the Popa side, but also with the al Um And that's a problem. Yan Mohammed Khan in Uruzgan, a Popa side, was quite able to engage in a witch hunt of the Gilzai that he saw associated with the Taliban, and he used his association with the, um, the uh, again, American military, but the other stories with other militaries, to intimidate people and say, you know... And that's the biggest threat you can go to a local and say, well, you know, if you don't do what I like, I'm going to tell the Americans you're Taliban, they're going to bomb you. So as that, you, you come again, you're belligerent at war, you're not seen as neutral. On top of it, you're actually seen as um, an implementing partner of, of local strongmen. And that's where you come back to who you work with. You know, who do you really work with and where do you get the information from? <clears throat> This set and those examples, and there are many, many others, you know. Examples of that where we've done research, where we've seen there's a clear alignment with one party only, which buys the view of the ground. And we tend to, when we give advice, whenever they ask us, we tend to try to engage with as many people as possible, try to make sure you triangle information as much as possible, um, and try to never act on information that might be difficult. This set, that bombing in Kunduz, you know, where the Germans called in an airstrike when that air tank, when, when that oil tanker was taken. Interestingly enough, it was one of the first airstrikes that the Germans were associated with, and you know that the German army by constitution is not allowed to be an aggressor. The Americans had a lot to do with the writing of that constitution. And while that particular airstrike led to a big international discourse, particularly in Germany, about the use of airstrikes, that particular airstrike in the Kunlu situation, that's why I say, well, it's tricky, Actually, when you talk to the locals, they didn't mind it as much. Because the locals in Kunduz thought that one of the reasons why the Taliban was able to go north was because the internationals weren't pushing back enough. And they were saying, well, two more of those very precise airstrikes, and the Taliban has gone from the north. So they don't necessarily mind the airstrikes. They mind on what information it's based on and how high they're likely to kill civilians. And I would say, since McChrystal, we acknowledge that in our report, Nunama has written that in their report, um, the number of airstrikes actually have gone down in Afghanistan, so that lesson has been learned to some degree. But not necessarily the number of uh, individuals killed with airstrikes, because, I mean, they are. But I there seems to be a learning in the army about, you know, how discriminate you indiscriminately use airstrikes. <clears throat> but then there's the other problem overall in a war, that it's the asymmetric warfare, is where it's hard to tell friend from foes, and that's just the story of treating civilians as enemies. And that's what was also I do in the blog when I talk until you get the wrong Ahmad. It's a story of, um, and I leave it up there and through, but it's basically um, what we're also trying to point out in the night raid brief that's coming out tomorrow, 
is an understanding what does it mean to sympathize and support the insurgency. Now put yourself in the shoes of a farmer. A Taliban come to your house. They want food. They want accommodation. What I sometimes even think is really great, they want you to wash their car. It's like, I was like, okay, come up with new things. Um, now, I know the international military, that's what they tell people, would expect that local farmer to turn them away and say, I don't want nothing to do with the Taliban, you go away. No, you're a farmer. They are the insurgents. They're armed. You know their reputation. You know what they can do. If there is no Afghan army, there's no police, there's basically nobody to protect you, what do you do? You look out for yourself. Right? You're in an in, in area of security. Do you turn them away? No, you likely will feed them. You likely will host them. But you likely also hope um, that they will go away. That eventually, you know, they will go away and leave you alone. So you do that. But that, by default, can get you a night raid the next night or two nights later. And, you know, somebody breaks your door down at 3 a.m., you know, accuses you of having hosted the Taliban, which is, of course, is true, you did. Um, can get you detained, get you raped. But I mean, this whole question of does it mean can you turn them down or can you not turn them down is, is a big problem. So, and that's the one quote I like to repeat. The international asked us to stop the Taliban. And it's like, the Taliban is nobody we can control. They don't listen to us. Just as little as it's in our power to tell the foreigners to stop killing civilians either. So this situation of being caught between a rock and a hard place, you know, I think needs to be understood. And that's what makes the work of the military so difficult. And then the question is, you know, that's the end of the quote, we are people without defense and cannot stop military from fighting. The mere assumption that all Pashtuns are Taliban is wrong. Right now, actually, the Pashtuns are in the most difficult position possible because a lot of because the, the Taliban grows out of the Pashtun because they recruit among them. Um, it's just the same all Gilzai's. It's actually not true. They are Popasai Taliban commanders. The Taliban has some Uzbek commanders in the north. They actually used to be Hazara Taliban commanders. They kind of recruit, but yes, they do recruit majority among the Pashtuns. It doesn't mean that all the Pashtuns are Taliban. Right now, most of the insecurity and violence is in Pashtun areas. So they, on the one hand, are labeled, it's easy to label them as, as insurgents, on the other hand, they suffer most right now from being this between a rock and a hard place. So no wonder that right now, when people know that a big military surge is happening, they just leave. And then this IDP displacement report with Brookings, we try to demonstrate that many people actually leave because they're so squeaked. Because they basically feel there is really no choice. I like that quote from the beginning, it's Khas there are six military governments in Khas Uruzgan, the PRTs, the Hazara militias, the ANA, Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Police, district government, and the Taliban. We are caught in the middle. And if you side with the government, the Taliban will kill you. If you side with the Taliban, the government will take you, the bombs will fall. So what do you do? It's really hard to be neutral, pro-government, affiliation could get you killed in a situation where an area is contested. And that's why I mean, can we really protect it? Because what would it mean? And I'm not a military person, but I believe, I think, what Kilkalim was suggesting, that means so many boots on the ground, that means embedding in Afghan communities, meaning really staying there and fighting. And I don't think you will get that many military on the ground to ever do that. Because the Taliban are highly mobile. They move in small groups. They have a completely different time frame. They don't care about own casualties because they have people that they recruit. 
So, and somebody told me one that's ultimately what asymmetric warfare is about, different time frame. You know, you don't care about civilian casualties or something, you don't do it, so it's extremely difficult. And what I could have done here is as well, and then understanding the difference of the insurgency. I'm always surprised how much people talk to the Quetta Shura, which are the real hardcore Taliban and ideologues. But then you've got, you know, Haqqani, you know, you've got the Mansur cell, you know, I think you've got about 10 probably layers of the Taliban. And then you've got a whole bunch of, and, you know, what, what, what Kilcallen calls the accidental guerrilla. I'm not sure it's all accidental, but you've got a whole layer of local, local insurgents which join out of a variety of different reasons. Exclusion, um, economic, political exclusion, grievances, either through, you know, bombings, raids, or through grievances from the, um, from, from the Afghan government side, some out of economic issues. Um, some criminals join in as well. Um, some people with drug debts, you know, have to give a son, you know. So the Taliban does not yet recruit forcefully as they used to do. So right now they still have a big advantage of picking up pretty much everybody who's a loser right now in Afghanistan. They're not very choosy right now of who is allowed to join the insurgency. So, And that very, makes it very, very difficult to negotiate with a leadership that somehow has a certain, you know, command over it. Because not everybody, you know, joins out of ideology. A lot of them actually don't. And it's hard to do percentages, but I reckon it's probably not even 20% of ideologues among the insurgency. And there are foreign insurgents as well. And the local center identify them by Urdu, Punjabi, Arabic, Uzbek-speaking Taliban. It's very interesting that, you know, if you think when the Taliban does their seizing, you know, they also have a little seize, hold, they don't build that they will, they build justice. And they do it with, uh, with outside Taliban. They either do it with foreign Taliban or they do it with Taliban from other areas. For example, the Taliban in Uruzgan is largely northern Helmandi Taliban. The Taliban in Kunduz, actually, they came from Kandahar, Uruzgan. Some Helmandi um, in Kandahar, when they, when they clear an area, they do it with sometimes Taliban from other areas because local insurgents cannot really do the really bad things because there is still traditional justice, there are still certain things you can and cannot do you from the area. And there's actually the best way for a village to make sure that you're left alone from international insurgents or foreign insurgents to create your own Taliban cell. So not all insurgents are, are there for the same reason, and some of them just want the Taliban to also go away, and some of them sit on the fence. And I would make the argument 80% of the population in the South right now is neither pro-government nor are they pro-insurgency they'd rather want something else. So one can engage them, but the question is, can you, is it a military way to engage them? Oh, I thought I thought I had something else slide, but like I say, I may have lost something. So, um, so that is basically the argument that we're, 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 trying, that we're trying to make in the writings that we are also doing. And we're doing a lot of research as well about the engagement environment for development actors, and we've become in a very precarious situation that's actually been um, considered, I mean, if people said, oh, you do exactly what the military does with human terrain, and I'd like to remind you, the military is picking up on social science analysis, and they're hiring anthropologists and social scientists as human terrain teams. If you don't know what a human terrain is, I advise you to look for a documentary recently done by the Watson Institute at Brown University called Human Terrain. I'm not sure whether that's public yet. I just saw it at International Studies Association. 
<clears throat> they've won some awards internationally, and they're about to show the final version in the U.S., and then it's available for instructional purposes, and there they're showing the shift in the military and the understanding by the military that the warfare has changed and that an understanding of the human terrain uh, is very important and, and that they're uh, getting engaged with human terrain teams, which are exosocial scientists. And we've also received an honorable, not so honorable mention in a report by a British general on improving intelligence in Afghanistan um, that the reports that are written for the Canadian government is essentially the kind of analysis needed. And they said, oh, look, you got praise. And I said, well, yeah, but I don't like to see it in a report on intelligence because what we're doing is doing ORM assessments for development actors. You know, and I, I can see why it's useful for military. But the problem becomes, is, in my opinion, the blurring of lines. I know there's a lot of interest from my colleagues while we write things, is that there is less damage done on the ground by the military. But ultimately, we are on the ground for peace building. We are on the ground to make a difference. So it's, it's, I find it's a very, very difficult environment in Afghanistan right now. We do talk military. I've briefed COM-ISAF. I've gone to the COIN Academy to try to get more generalized understanding going. And once they've asked me, they said, can you give us some advice on the shape phase? And I said, well, I don't even know what the shape phase is. I guess it's now shape, clear, hold, and build. So that I have no idea how to advise you on a shape phase because I frankly don't know what you mean by a shape phase. What I can give you advice on is on how to try to reduce harm by trying to understand the engagement, by trying to make sure you don't become even more a party to the conflict by associating with one of the local actors, but not with all. And, you know, we gave some advice on that. So we try to do engage with the military, but we find it very, very difficult of having our reports used for military purposes and having them called intelligence because, frankly, that could get, you know, our researchers on the ground, it could get them killed because they're civilians. None of our local staff will go into a PRT. And that's why we have internationals that I work with our organization. Um, so it's tricky. I don't think I've answered the question. I probably have raised a lot more issues and, um, about it. But, I mean, the reason why we sometimes give talks to talk is just to try to remind people of the complexity of the situation. Afghanistan is hard to see black and white. I'd like to tell it's the shades of gray. I know it's very difficult for military trainers to teach that to their military, you know, because they feel that a soldier needs to understand black and white or he or she won't get killed. But Afghanistan, unfortunately, is particularly a lot of shades of gray. And, um, and who, and everything is, you know, you've seen in associations, so who you engage with, who you get information from, it's just incredibly difficult and precarious. And, and to do anything in Afghanistan without becoming part of localized conflict or local agendas, you just have to need to have a very good understanding. And I do believe that it's not a war that can actually be won militarily. I believe it's actually where you need to start think of negotiations. In my opinion, not necessarily with the Quetasher, but on a local level with the local insurgents, and you need to understand for that what made them join the insurgency. And then you need to have, obviously, um, somebody to engage with, and that goes back to the fact that you cannot abandon the project of building the state in Afghanistan because you've started it, of building the Afghan National Police, of building the Afghan National Army. Make sure that if then somebody fights the insurgents, the Afghans. might be actually cheaper than bringing 30,000 more troops. I don't know what it involves, but a lot of Afghans were surprised about that move by Obama because they thought it would be much cheaper to use that for the training and improving stability of the army, which has a very good reputation and maybe improve the training of the police, which is a very bad reputation. And, um, 
and continue that project, you know, rather than just saying, well, we're going to sideline all the bad governance now because we know there's bad governance, and maybe use a bit aid conditionality with Karzai. Um, so the question of, you know, being again black and white, should the military withdraw all or not, is not, but the question is maybe less is more, how you use them, and, and when, whether you get more into robust peacekeeping issues, in my personal opinion, I will say that, not necessarily my colleagues, is that I, if I probably would like to consolidate what military does, which would mean that maybe get OEF and special forces out and focus on ISF NATO. Because I still believe there is two man nights on the ground and it's just very, very difficult to work with that. You know? And then I know it, when I went to Kunduz and I talked to the deputy of the RC North, which is the command in the North, they were extremely annoyed by the fact that they get a call and said, okay, we'll have a special operation. When the Americans thought the Europeans weren't good enough in holding the Taliban out, you stand down. They're only told roughly it's gonna, they're going to arrive you know, in this time frame. They're not allowed to do anything in that time, and they have to wait until the sweep is done, but then they have to deal with the consequences. And he was not very amused about it. So I think my crystal needs to look a little bit more about that internal cohesion as well, of if you want to do it, how you do it, and how you use force. Again, I probably raised more issues. You know, I'm certainly not an expert to advise in military strategy, which is why after coin meetings when people come and say, what do we do, I say, don't think it's really my role. I can show you the complexities, but I personally, I can give advice, I think, is on peace-building strategies, and we really do local, we do dialogue, and we really work on conflict resolution on a very micro level. So, But we come into that position, which is difficult for us, and we're getting more and more thought out to advise military because we're seen as understanding the human terrain. And I've got some ethical issues with that, so, you know. If it helps, I can say I'm German background, you know, I come from a very belligerent country. <laughs> so, all right, so I leave it open, you know, I hope it wasn't too boring, too erratic, you know, and I hope that there was also some learning because I just wanted to throw some things out and some stories. Um, there are writings that are public, there are reports coming out, so you can also read it. If you're interested, I would particularly advise you to read the Night Raid report. It should be coming out in the next days by the Open Society Institute. We've tried to come up with some recommendations on how potentially to decrease the negative impact of Night Raids. So, since we know that ideally we probably can say quit them, <laughs> I think that would be like the best case scenario. Oh, really? I missed that one. See, that's when, you know, it snows. That was when it, then that's when a blizzard hits Washington and they delay the, the, you know, they delay the release of our report. It's been done for three weeks, you know, because they were looking for the timing and then, you know, they called all night raids off. I think I'd be really disappointed. Thank you. I haven't been on the news at all, you know, today, so. Woohoo! <laughs> that's good. But, of course, now it's like de facto our report, so. <laughs> Thank you. You know, actually, frankly, I don't think that the Afghans want that many different things that you would want. Most people don't like to have their rights violated. You know, you wouldn't want that. They don't want that. So mostly they're looking for a government that's accountable, that creates governance, that brings justice and security. 
you know. And they want actually professional people get positions, not people because they belong to a jihadi party or a warlord. And I actually think if you look, if you look at those qualifications, they're not that different from what you would want from a government. And they're not that different. Yeah, I think there we actually don't differ. Most ordinary Afghans I've met want peace. They want roads. They want schools. They're just, you know, they're tired of war. Um, but they want justice, which includes also transitional justice and reconciliation. You know, there are people in government, you know, and people that we've associated with that have done bad things that would be considered by all means war criminals, and it's never been touched because there is an understanding. People always say, no, we need to work with those people, and the question is, do we? We've so far only ever singled out the Taliban as the one that we decided were the bad guys, but there are the bad guys too. So basically I think it, it can be, it's just a longer process and we're just at a very difficult impasse because of cutting corners, I think. So. Two things. Uh, one is that you mentioned that Taliban are not in the Pashtuns, there are others. But when you look at the, the Quetta and Shura, they're all Pashtuns, yes. Top of them are 20 people. Of those 20, they're almost all Pashtuns. Yes. And they're not only in Jais. Uh, Mullah Omar is a Giljai, he comes from the Giljai, uh, he's Hutak. Hutak, he's Hutak, yes. Yeah, yes. But you have Popasa, you have Durani's, yeah. you have others, Second yes. Second command, because just a rest of the week ago, uh, this Mullah Brada. Brada, he's Popasa, you know? He's I'm dropping government in a box from what I hear in the Christmas side. They were talking to the elders of the, of the Hilman. Mm-hmm. And in the background, they were speaking in Pashto, and I could understand. But the translator missed the whole thing. Yeah. And one of the people, one of the elders are telling to the American that for God's sake, okay, you have now cleared this area. Then how are you going to protect it and keep it? They said, well, you're policemen. They said, no, don't, don't send this Afghan police. They're so corrupt. So if you guys are staying here, that's fine. Otherwise, we are. So it is now, now, to protect the civilians, protect the civilians from Taliban or from the corrupt Afghan police too. This is not has come into the picture of the strategy here. But okay, clearing Taliban is easy, I would say, in Hidmati Dohira. How to now protect people against this corrupt police and corrupt system? We just saw what happened. Well, holding, I think, is extremely yes, difficult. Absolutely. And for that, you need the amount of soldiers you'll never have. And that's why what Kilcullen said, the protection from all sides, it's just, I think it's a near impossibility in the situation. The same thing, I was <coughs> governor of Kandahar last year in, in, in summer, and the same thing happened. The elders came, and there was a Canadian general, and the governor was talking to them, and the people from the villages said the same thing. Uh, well, we are not scared of Taliban. Taliban are at least doing some sort of justice. Right. Which is why I said that, you know, if you want to build, you have to reform the police as you did the Afghan National Army. And um, and that's a lot of work. Because there's been an argument that was a little focus on the police, and that's essentially, you know, a lot of people, that's the first, that's the contact the Afghans have with the state. And in the police, that gets good enough salary that they don't have to have the fringe benefits, that gets trained well enough. And that's held accountable, that if you are 
not doing a good job, you get sacked. If a police chief is not doing a good job, you get sacked. And we've seen very small examples in Deravud one where that happened, that the, there was a confidence-building measure between government and the people when it actually happened. You know, and that's why I think, you know, that's another recommendation we had in our, our brief is that if you now let the Afghan, you know, giving responsibility over the Afghan government, you know, forces doesn't take you away from also having responsibility. You know, you can't just, just outsource everything. That means that if you are together, let's say, with Afghan National Army or police and you see them violate rights or human rights, you know, I, I would think it would be your role to point it out. You know, and not to say, okay, it's not our business, you know, it's their business, they can do it. So, and I think there was this guy in the Canadian army that was nearly dishonorably discharged because he tried to make an issue about the Bachaki, the boy players, you know, about the abuse of, of, of young boys by the police. Because somebody said to him, don't touch it, that's Afghan cultural issue. And I think he, he was quite upset about the fact that they didn't really want to deal with it, you know, that didn't want to deal with the issue that... There are things going on that alienate, you know, and you're training them, and they're potentially the training and talk about the fact that pedophile is not really anything that's um, uh, that is a good thing, you know. And even if there's something in that culture, it is not really that well accepted either. And what you said on the Taliban, all I was trying to point out, the Taliban does also collaborate with others, you know. In Ghazni, there were always some Hazara commanders. We've heard about that in Daikundi as well. In, in Kunduz, there's some Uzbek commanders, and I think recently they hired a Tajik you know, a guy that hadn't been DDR, demobilized well enough, you know, because a lot of people in Afghanistan that have never been fully reintegrated in the DDR process, you know, and they lose status, they lose power, and for them a war is just a mighty good thing to happen, you know, you can take up the arms again, you can fight, you know, and if the government doesn't hire you, if the army doesn't hire you as a campaign militia, um, if you don't make it into a private security company, um, well, you know, I mean, maybe get hired by the Taliban. So we see actually people that get professionally hired because they're good commanders, so on all sides. And that has a problem to do that, you know, DDR, you know, that was never went that well in Afghanistan. So. Oh, the 18 months? Um, okay, I've never, per, I mean, I've met McChrystal because we were allowed to brief, but I never personally talked to him. I used to talk to Eikenberry when he was first U.S. forces and then NATO. Um, so I don't talk that much to generals. You know, we talk to other people. Well, I, uh, now I don't think it's an 18-month thing, and I think the military knows that. But the, the question is whether you can pacify it enough. I think what they're trying to create is what they did in Iraq. Create enough stability, a surge that gets handed over that you can actually withdraw. I personally think Obama was talking more to the home constituency. But frankly, if I was a Taliban, hey, I just know I lay low for 18 months. I move out of the south, you know, go. Right now it's winter rest anyways, you know. So they, I go to the north and let them, you know, do it for 18 months and then I come back in. Because they're quite, I mean, the problem is the insurgency is unfortunately quite well organized. Their propaganda machine is incredible. There are some people who have said, like, we get out propaganda as well. So, because they pick up on every mistake you make. And that's why I say you, it's, it's, that's about avoiding mistakes, you know, half truth, you know, even full truth. They pick it up, you know. And they're quite, quite, quite good about that, you know. And then they spin it. So, two. 
I can't give you an answer how long it will take, unfortunately. So. Okay, well, I didn't know that special forces are training because sometimes, like, police is trained by Dine Corps as well, it gets outsourced. Yeah, so, <coughs> okay, well, I thought that the primary mission is to do those night raids, so that was what I was referring to, you know, those. I thought that the primary mission was capture and kill, counter terrorism. Maybe I should specify and say that maybe they should get away from that, which they have stopped now, the capture and kill missions and focus on the, on the, on the training. The second part is you say, well, no, they were just surprised because they felt that so far the military hasn't been able to stabilize. And there's actually been for some Afghans an association that when military comes in, security goes down for the civilians on the ground. So as it happens in war. Um, and the question was, why can't you just use the money that those 30,000 troops would cost logistically and, you know, build it on the and put get more trainers? And I know that 10,000 of those troops are supposed to be used for training as far as I understand it. So 10,000 go to Kandahar, 10,000 for training. So yes, and I think there needs to be maybe this communication what those troops are for, but unfortunately what is very visible is this, this what goes on in Helmand. You know, so I think there needs to be, and that's the communication, as I say, the Taliban's better on propaganda, is the clear communication when you say we're sending more troops, what are they there for, what are they doing, and clear visible, because the Afghans would say, let the Afghans fight the Afghans, at least that it doesn't make you party of the conflict anymore, but train. And I, I would actually think, use your own army. Don't use DynCorp. You know, I also have written of private security companies. So I mean, one of it is on the one online. Another one I can send out because it's not published yet. So um, until they were regulated, they're cutting corners. They still do. So. Oh, you know, there's a saying that Karzai is the mayor of Kabul. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, you know, like traditionally the Afghan state, you know, you have to look at history. You really have to understand history. Historically, the Afghan state never had much power in the periphery. The only way they were able to rule was with negotiations. And I think the biggest mistake was to give Afghanistan a presidential system, which was modeled around the U.S. I mean, look at the complexity of the country. What you need is more like a canton Switzerland or a federal Germany. You need something that divided the power a bit more evenly among the ethnic groups, among the regions, and that goes a bit more how the kings used to rule. And that's why I would say you should have looked historically when the last time Afghanistan had peace and why things worked. But a presidential system is actually extremely bizarre for an Afghan context, which gives power to an individual. But we like Karzai at one point. Now we don't like him anymore. Or we are stuck with a presidential system because now we need to change the constitution. So there's very little power of the central government outside. And what he's done is it's called big tent approach is why he thinks he co-opts warlords, why he works with people like Shrizoya or Atta. You know, so it works somewhere and it doesn't work in other areas. And in some areas he's just unfortunately sent thugs as governors. And if you send thugs as governors, they're thugs primarily and governors secondarily. Now, that's the story of Uruzgan, that's the story of Helmand. There's other questions too, you know, so. Yes or no, so you think that 
uniting Afghanistan and giving the rest of Afghanistan to recognize the Karzai government is to not, it would not be successful. That's not what our main goal should be. Well, no, I think a main goal should try to make sure that I think you don't, if you think you then support the government, that you that you set I mean, my certain benchmark and standards of what do you, what do we find acceptable in the government to do or not, you know, and that you use aid conditionality, you know, of you know when they don't do certain things, you know, if you know they're corrupt, then Karzai still hasn't managed to present any of the drug dealers that are in government, you know, so you know then just maybe next time say you won't get those money for the government, you know, that's a for for an issue, you know, of how you choose your allies. The other thing I believe, don't work with campaign militias for crying out loud, you know, which are, you know, non-state armed actors which don't fall on anything, you know, so. Well, different. I mean, we have a... A commission on conflict resolution, but we, we facilitate, we don't do it ourselves so much. We have a commission of conflict um, mediation and host, which is between the elders and the governor. We work a lot on the informal formal linkages. It works quite well, but it works less because the mechanism works because the right guys are in the mechanism, you know. So most of our research is try to make them understand. We do facilitation and dialogue between groups um, where we bring them. In Oruzgan, we're about to engage in a mediation with a tribe. And they told me, please don't mention the name because we don't want anybody to meddle. So, um, so we do things like that. And, lot of, and the more the peace building stuff, the conflict resolution is a bit more low key and we don't talk so much about it just because we like to, and often we just facilitate actors and get, to, get them to talk. And we, when possible, try to make a linkage to government. We don't believe in parallel structures. We always look at linkages, so. And we tend to do the research for ourselves as well, so. There's not everything we know we share. Yes, I'm not sure there's somebody else, but please. The which agreement? Sorry. Okay. Who is the good Taliban? <laughs> well, as I say, you know, like, I don't know, because often when they talk to the insurgents, they want to talk to the Quetta Shura, and oh, there's something about moderate Taliban. Like I say, you have to literally go village by village, Wand, which is a local area, Wanda by Wanda, Mantega by Mantega. It's very difficult because insurgents join in different areas for different reasons. You know, and then you got the Taliban, and you've got the Hek, uh, they got the, got the Hekmatyar groups, you know, so sometimes they're with them, sometimes they're without that. So it's very hard to make this unfortunate generalistic thing. But it's easier to talk to, you know, it's very easy because it's faster to talk to something that is a structure like the Quetta Shura. But ideally, I would, I would do the negotiation locally. And I know it's nearly an impossible task. This is going to take time. Oh, the Quetta sure, of course, would. <laughs> you know, so they, they, some of them would go. Now, well, no, actually, the Taliban Mexico won't, but there would be some who would. But it's the question is it the guys you want to share power with. A lot of the local insurgent commanders may not want to share. They may be more than willing to lay their weapons down if there's good governance. So the question is do you need a power sharing, or do you just need to make sure that there's good, good people in power? Sometimes it's just that a local, let's say, let's take a province. <clears throat> 
Let's take Uruzgan province, a minority tribe, which is the Popasai, nearly dominates a lot of the government positions. I think last provincial council, out of the five, there's three. A minority tribe is like five, ten percent of the province. So the way you do the power sharing is not so much that you say we get the insurgents on board, you get the groups on board. It's a diverse country, multi-ethnic, multi-tribal. When you do power sharing, you do it between the groups. That's the way I see it. Because you're trying to make arrangements with guys with guns. For me, I say understand why they pick up the guns and see how you can get them on board. That's just my opinion. And that's what we work on the ground on to get this group. You need a, you need just a more representative government. And if you look at other countries which are very diverse, I think they're more happy when they have a more representative government, right? Ideally. And right now there's just situations where certain tribes or certain ethnic groups, but mostly tribes in the south, Pashtuns are very complicated. It's a very complicated tribal system. Uh, unfortunately, there's some areas in the south where certain small tribes have dominated the political system. And that there used to be a better balance under the monarchy. There's always rivalry going on, but unfortunately right now, a minority of the Iraq Durrani tribes have dominated the political picture in Afghanistan. And I could explain it, I could have brought a tribal genealogy up there. And that's why we try to very much understand who is in power. You know, we try to understand what's the composition of an area, what groups exist, and who actually is in power. And then if you do basic analysis, I think in conflict, in conflict analysis, in, in sociology, political science, I think it's quite clear if there is a very big group that's marginalized, there are different ways to deal with this marginalization, right? I mean, and one way is to join an insurgency. So that's how I would do it. That's just my opinion. And you know, I know my mom. My mom called me after the London conference. Said, "What do you think of the idea of using money to pay the Taliban to reintegrate?" And I say, "Sure, go to a village and give them money. The village is going to have 20 more Taliban fighters for you. You know, it's uh, doing something with money in Afghanistan is you know, most of it is about resources and power. So, so I think it's just the best." What, what I think what you could try to do is to make sure that there's an even dis distribution. There's an Afghan saying, you can't buy an Afghan, you can only rent him. So, I, I'm a bit cynical, sorry. I'm, I hope I answered your questions, you know. I, I wouldn't necessarily make it a fighter solution. Yes? Oh, okay, sorry, yeah. I could have, yeah. <laughs> That's the point he was just saying, that there was translation. He understood what was said in the background, but they missed the story. And part of the reason, and I probably should mention when I said, you know, make sure where your information comes from, most Afghans believe that the translators have a lot of power in that system where you don't speak the language. Anyway, you don't speak the language and you don't know what everything is translated or not, you're at the mercy of your translator. So make sure if you work in a diverse environment that you have the translators from, your, from the groups. Don't go with a translator from a different group to another group. I think there were times very early on they actually had not Pashtun speakers in the South translating who didn't even properly speak Pashtu. And if you don't know the difference between Dari and Pashtu and how it sounds, you know, you wouldn't know. And that's the issue about age. Often they take very, very young guys, you know, because they speak English, but who may not really understand anymore how to treat elders. So yes, it's a big issue. From the local population, it's seen as a big issue. 
who is able to enlist and befriend the internationals. Because see, the way I always say it, you are a resource, I'm a resource, we are a resource, we are a military resource, we are a monetary resource. I'm a resource too for TLO, you know, they use me for fundraising, they use me for public talking, I'm a resource. So see yourself as a resource and then you have to make sure that you're not being abused as a resource. So, just don't get played in plain language and that is hard. You know, that's where the resource issue come in. If it's about fighting about resources, and, um, and if I don't have enough guns, then, you know, if I befriend the U.S. Army, the German Army, somewhere and get them to, you know, convince them, you know, or miss, they have been, arrests been made because of mistranslations. I've heard stories of that. You know, that some elders came and talked, you know, and the interpreter just made up a story what supposedly the elders said and he got arrested. So there have been stories about that. So it gives power. Yes, I think it would give them extreme power. So ideally you want probably I, people with language skills, and that's just very, very, I mean, that's very small, but I would even say in the research community, there are very few people who speak the languages. So researchers, in my opinion, now is there, are you sure you get the right translation? Now, I don't speak the languages fluently, but I um, understand enough that I tend to get when they don't translate something. And my guys by now know that they have to be careful. So as I go and I said, you know, there's, I, I think you missed something. <laughs> and I tell them, I think that's what you missed. You know, so you just have to make sure that you keep them on their toes, translators. So it's, it's tricky. It's a very tricky environment. So. And I'm not sure how many war contexts you have where you don't speak the language. You know. So, are there other questions? Or? No, no, when I meant that, maybe, actually, I'm not sure there's so much cooperation, but the point is right now, you have the PRTs. Mm -hmm. If I would quote one PRT commander, he says, we are Swiss Army knife. <laughs> so we have the security, we do the reconstruction. Now they're supposed to do governance, government, conflict resolution, you know, Swiss Army knife. Um, most civilian development workers are, are in PRTs. You've got USA, you've got State Department. This is American PRT, no, but they're actually basically in every PRT, even if they're not American. You have political <coughs> departments, you know, you have development actors. Like, for example, in Uruzga, and the development actors are Dutch, they can't get out of the PRT. I mean, there's some people who will ne never see anything but the PRT. That's it. They don't see Afghanistan, they see the PRT. And if they get out, they get out with a military convoy. So it basically, that's what I meant, is the linkage is everything gets blurred, you know. Um, I'm not sure that many humanitarian or, of course, UNAMA talks to them, but they talk to them about usually when there are problems, when they have to deal with issues. Um, there is a tight issue of how you deal with the civil military situation, um, you know, and the linkage. Now, the people that tend to do what, what, what were the ones post-battle cleanup, it's contractors. It's not humanitarian organizations. It's usually contractors, USAID contractors, because no NGO would get involved in what they consider post-battle cleanup. 
it's difficult. It's very, very difficult because you already get associated, you know, and then, and then the insurgents can associate you with a, as, 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 as a belligerent and that is okay to kill you. So there's a lot of concern, actually, of the blurring of lines. That's probably more how I meant it, you know. So, the, and What I meant is the ICRC talks to the military, but the International Red Cross talks to the military because that's their job. They also talk to the Taliban because the job of the International Red Cross is to make sure that Geneva Conventions are being upheld, among other. They also go to prisons to make sure that people are tortured, etc. So it's their job. And they're talking to the military about the breaking of Geneva Convention. So, so that's what I meant. Any kind of sort of interaction would be holding accountability, would be accountability issues. And I think Unama comes back and when, when elders have come and complained of raids, bombings, and things like that. So, yeah, so it wasn't that connect, in the connection, so where that happens in the PRTs. But, you know, people can't get out. I remember when I, last when I was in Urzgan last November, and I went from Tirinko to Deira Rut, and the Dutch military was talking to some elders there. They had cornered an entire village part of, the, of Deira Rut off, you know, they were in the governor's compound. They were surrounded by their guys, and you know, on top were snipers. And I walked in there, and they were slightly irritated to see a civilian person walking in there. And they say, "How did you get there?" And I say, "I took the road by car." I say, "Well, what's your security detail?" And I said, "My driver and my colleague, who was also translating." And they were like, "Oh, that's how we get around, and it's uh, low profile." And I certainly can't go. I can't go to Kandahar. The only way I could go is in a burqa, and I'm too tall for a burqa, and it would risk my colleague's life. I haven't gone to Kandahar for quite a while. These days I go to Uruzgan. Southeast is getting a bit bad. So, yeah. I usually can measure security, my own mobility, because I'm so visible for it. I mean, of course, I won't go like that anyway. So, But I can't change. I've got blue eyes and blonde, blonde hair, and I'm too tall for a woman. So... But I, I have more mobility. And the interesting thing, what's happened in Kabul, that as the security of internationals go up, ours go down. Our cars, which are just regular Corollas, you know, they're not big white cars because low profile. I can't get to the embassies anymore. I can't even get to the UN anymore. They have to drop me at the end of the street and have to walk. Sometimes it's kind of bizarre. You walk through all those beton areas until they let you in. So um, it, it's an interesting interaction. So. And two. May I ask you a question about the search now? The um, situation is so bad in Afghanistan that uh, someone has to be just like a journalist, a social scientist, sociologist, economist, and political scientist. I can go to Kandahar, I can go to Lashkarga, I can go to Jalalabad because I have relatives and friends and connections. I cannot go to Ghazni. When I went to Ghazni, I was living. So as a sociologist, a psychologist, a anthropologist, they have to be either embedded, like the journalists are, or either, if they're embedded, they cannot do the research. If they do the research, it's dangerous. So, so, so that's my, my question, is that how really this, can we consider this as really free research? When, when someone else is collecting data for them, someone else is translating for them. Uh, it's, I mean, there, there are questions behind that. They become like journalists, uh, just embedded with the, uh, people are not telling them the truth. Well, you get a part of the story, I would say. You have to be careful what you get. We use, just if you want to know our methodology, we hire locals. I mean, we're an Afghan organization anyways. Um, and I've been trying to bring the capacity they lack, which is the writing and analysis. But when we go in Kandahar, we do 
research in Spin Bulldog, we hire people from Spin Bulldog who know the context and then we train them up. When we are in a ethnic diverse or, or tribal diverse area, we like to hire from each group. We listen to each of the stories we get and we try to triangulate it. And, we then, and then some of our senior Afghan staff and some as we ourselves do some keen form and interviews for triangulation of data. They don't go out with questionnaires that gets you killed. They get parts of questions and they go out and have conversations and they come back with the data and then we get a debriefing and then we identify the gaps and send them back. So there's a constant back and forth of the field. We fire people when we think, you know, our research methodology takes four pages to acknowledge how we do it and the bias is possibly involved. It's difficult, you know. So, please. We know that Iran intelligence is there, but so is Pakistani intelligence, you know, so we know that they are there. Um, there used to be, there used to be, was it Muslim relief or Arab relief? There used to be some. I mean, you have the embassies, but they're very few, it's true, non-Western NGOs. I mean, they're Western NGOs like Action Aid that then hires Indians, for example, to work there. So some of the Western NGOs hire non-Western nationals to work there. Um, Pakistani, very difficult, because Pakistanis are, so, uh, are seen so biased that to have Pakistani work in your NGO could, could get you seen as a very biased, you know. What they work in, I can tell you, is they, they bring Indians for management. They bring in, uh, or sometimes Pakistan for financial things. The things that Afghans are not so good at, Indians come for those things. But it's more like as professional capacities. Not so much in program. I remember I've seen an action aid. The Aga Khan Foundation sometimes brings, brings um, non-Western nationals. You know, so some of the NGOs hire non-Western nationals to do that. So um, from different areas. Um, also Africa, but yes, India. Iran is also difficult. The individual Iranians that work there, they of course got the language capacity. But it'd be very difficult to say they have Iranian organizations there, again, because they're not seen as fully neutral. Um, there used to be Arab relief agencies, and there's still there's some. They're not many. You know, I think the United Arab Turkey Emirates. To what Turkey has. Turkey has a. But NGOs? I schools, yes, no, schools, but we're thinking like the traditional NGO less, but they do build schools and things like that. Um, now, because we've talked about that, sometimes it might be better to have a Muslim NGO coming in and do things, you know, so. Um, but not on a big, big scale. There might be some very small selected cases, so. So in that sense, yeah, it's still very Western-dominated environment, so. Yes, please. No, we've, we've seen that. In the areas where the insurgency have become, even insurgency, justice system has become biased and has like, bi like, that, like punishes locals more than they would punish their own guys for doing wrong. Yes, we've seen that. Um, well, I mean, the people are sick of the insurgency. <laughs> the question, what can you do about it? I mean, like I say, the fact that you actually 
accommodate insurgency or coexist with it doesn't mean that you're very much in favor of it. Many people, I mean, there are coexistence agreements between the Afghan government and the insurgency in some areas that we've seen because the local government officials don't want to get killed either. So, I mean, there's police that, has, you know, I mean, not if they don't switch sides, you know, there's the question whether that night they work for the Taliban, a day they work for the ANP, you know, to like better their salaries or they lose their weapons frequently, which they sell to the insurgency. So, I mean, there are these connections. But, yeah, no, I mean, the population is not super happy with the insurgency. And like I say, I, I mean, if you ask the majority of the Afghans, they wouldn't want the Taliban government to come back. Yeah, as a man. Unlikely, it's probably going to get the guy killed. I think it's difficult with the, without without the ability of getting protections when you give that information on. Difficult. Some may, some may not. You know, the fish in the sea. I would say more that they actually thrive on the fact that there's poor governance, that they thrive on the fact that it's corruption, that they thrive on the fact that there's no, not not a good police, they thrive on the fact that the justice system is so bad. That's what feeds them. If you provide those alternatives. If you provide a viable alternative, you know, it's, it's, yeah. And frankly speaking, I think just, uh, you know where the sanctuaries are for crying out loud, you know. I'm, I'm unfortunately there in a country where we respect the sovereignty a bit more than in Afghanistan, so. That's an Afghan said that once to me. Um, if you, you want to try to block a river, you better do it at the, at the beginning of the stream, because if you block in the middle of the stream, it's just going to spill out in other areas, so. But I know it's tricky. It's very tricky. But I mean, I think I, I, you know that you know where the Quetta Shura sits there. That's why they called Quetta Shura. We likely know they guarded by his eye. We know where Haqqani is in Waziristan. We know where the weapon markets are there. But yes, they're in a country which is a bit more tricky for us to actually go in and bomb there or raid there, or because they have nuclear power and you know it's not so much accepted. It's very difficult for the Afghans to see that they get all the military. But across in Pakistan, you know, they that's where the guys are. You know, so I don't even like saying that, but the Afghans tell you, you know, you know where they are, you know, if you want to kill them, you know. Okay. I've, I've been asked it sometimes. I, I don't, some, I mean, frankly, I, I mean, I may know a lot about Afghanistan. There's many things I don't know, and I'm not sure. I mean, a, I'd say there are no silver bullets. It's a problem, and we are unfortunately at a very difficult juncture. Changing the political system right now means rewriting the constitution. You know, there's been calls about rewriting the constitution, rewriting it to a parliamentary system. You know, where you allow parties more power, where you, where you try to arrange power sharing. Um, one way I think that might be right now, most of the political appointments, you know, governors, district governments, they're appointed, not elected. As far as I understand the U.S., your governors are elected locally, right? So one could start with saying, okay, well, let's try to essentially get more consensus on who the local P5 
people, like, you know, because there have been suggestions that there were governors, locals wanted a governor and Karzai wanted somebody else, you know. So that would be one way of starting, you know, from the bottom up, you know, reforming subnational governance and starting that you get elected leaders who then when people don't like them, you know, they can change them. We have seen actually in this particular election the provincial council, entire provincial council have been changed because the guys before were just absolutely no. Then I believe, you know, I've got a bit of an issue with elections because, see, when you sell democracy and you cannot guarantee that you, they get a full 100% democracy like in our country, I'm not sure you want to sell voting and democracy in a country where you can't guarantee free voting, where you can't go voter intimidation. Afghanistan had a very interesting system through their jurgas. We used it for the emergency lawyer jurga, we used it for the constitutional lawyer jurga, and there was an idea we maybe could have worked a bit more through the system, which is a staggered election system, you know? So, I mean, I think there are things where we didn't... See, when I started working with TLO in 2003, I had a hard time getting funding because I was working with the tribes. I was working with traditional structures. And from that side, 2003 until 2010, the pendulum has swung from, oh, no, we can't work with them. They're backward. They're traditional. They don't respect women's rights. We've swung over into the other extreme of what I call jumping the tribal bandwagon, where we see the solution in the tribes. And now, all of a sudden, I become the word of caution, saying not everything can be done with them. That it's not the solution. Tribal militias are a bad idea. You know, um, you also have to understand that even there's corruption in their system. You have to understand how to use it. And, um, yeah, and basically I think you just, I am a bottom-up person, so I think you need to start. And I think basically because of where we are, it's going to be a very, very slow process. But accountability and giving the Afghan population the feeling that the leaders are accountable to them, not to you. That's a big problem because right now they're more accountable to the outside than to their own people is important. And again, I, I think that's something that you have to think that's something you would want. You want your political leaders to be accountable to you, right? You would want that the person that you elect, that they do something good for you in the area. And to have a system. I always like think if you want to reform the Afghan National Police, could you have an ombudsman system where people actually can complain if they're being corrupt and behaving badly and then people get changed if they do that? And that maybe gives you a bit pride that people get rewarded if they're actually good police. Right now, uh, neither good behavior is not rewarded. So, I mean, are there ways of system, are there lessons from other countries we can learn, you know, with something like in Somaliland work where next to the parliament there is an elders council where people can bring the elders that has an advisory function. So I think maybe a bit more creative. Yeah. And don't work with militias. Unfortunately, the military still does. I heard they're now armed security groups. I already wrote about them, and I wrote about private security companies. You want to work with bodies that even, if marginally so, can be held accountable in a system, even if imperfectly so. If you work with a non-state actor that's not accountable to anybody, that's difficult, then you have to be the accountability body. So I think try to actually work with systems where there is some kind of accountability structure. So. Okay. <laughs> and again, I don't have the silver bullet solution, you know, but I mean, sometimes we try to sensitize people to the complexity, so. Yes, please.
But do you think it's going to be enough, though? I mean, like I say, I don't. I, I know they want to work on population centers now. Well, they would only, in effect, accept it if they see what you're doing. I'm glad the nitrates are finished. If that's what you're doing, probably not. If they see you working with the local strongman, difficult. They would have to see you as neutral. They would have to see you as actually working for something in the Afghan government. So that's difficult. I always want somebody to evaluate the Dutch approach in Uruzgan because I think the Dutch had a very different kind of approach, how they used aggressive force and how they, how they combined it. And that's why Uruzgan, in my opinion, has improved a bit. We've written a bit about it, but of course, we're biased. We've worked with the Dutch for over three years in Uruzgan. But I think there's something about how you actually do it and how you try to work the terrain, so to speak. And then, yes, it's fine. I don't think they hate the Americans per se. They potentially hate you associated with and they hate what you do. The you know? Huh? I know, but the Dutch are leaving because of their constituencies back home. I know that the Dutch themselves would have liked to stay. But what they've built uh, over the past several years, is that going to survive their withdrawal? We don't know. It's difficult. Because the moment you start holding accountable, which is why it's better to build institutions, is because when you go, it's gone. We warned the Dutch about that. Uh, Australians, I've talked to them because they're going to stay, but they don't want to take the lead. So it's high likely, I suppose, it'll be an American lead in order gone if the Dutch go. You know, the Canadians are leaving too, so, right? I heard. But the thing is, there'll be a lot more people leaving. So when, when you really have a lot more people, I don't think that, again, you will have enough American army to take over. Then maybe you need to think, what is what can be done if you can't do it with counterinsurgency or army? Are there other things you can do? Is it less that you go to certain cities? You know, you try it in the cities with bus peacekeeping and then try to work on, on improving institutions and negotiations. It's a difficult situation, you know, so it's very, very difficult, and I don't say I've got the answers. I don't even know whether in six months the, the kind of work that my organization does, we can still do, you know. I really don't know. My, my mobility has been so reduced in the years I've been working in Afghanistan where I can go, you know. But, I mean, there are, and I think there are Afghans who do want to still change. It's just a very protracted situation, you know. And I just don't think you'll ever have enough military to do what COIN wants you to do, you know. Because the geographic terrain is also very difficult, you know. You understand it's mountainous, you know, you get villages, you know. You know you're gonna send, and that's what I was trying to tell Kilkalan, are you going to send them to every village? You know. And then the question is, you know, are the troops going to do good or harm, or do you have to think about something else, you know, so which is maybe more non-military solution, which is going to take longer. I'm, I'm, I think it is really It's going to take longer. And I know there is an issue of how long the commitment will be in <coughs> Afghanistan. That's why the Afghans right now, from a very rational, active perspective, most Afghans are going to try to get as much money as they can get out, as long as they can get it in salaries and jobs or in corruption, because they just don't know how long it lasts. It's a very rational, active perspective, I think. I talk to them all the time, you know. That's why you have got obscene salaries, even for Afghans in Afghanistan, not comparable at all to anywhere in South Asia. And I keep telling them that's not sustainable, and I say, we don't care. As long as you can make money right now, 
and save it up for the time that maybe everybody will leave and leave us alone and there'll be a war again. And they're looking at exit strategies. Most Afghans already are looking at exit strategies. So, so it's difficult. But I'm actually really glad that there has been a learning process that they stopped night raids. So. Okay. So. Thank you very much. Sorry again, I got to run around.